Welcome to The Golfing Mind. Today, I'm very pleased to announce we have a special edition. We don't have a lot of special editions in The Golfing Mind, but when we do, they're worth the wait. And today, I'm delighted to continue on our series of occasional interviews with um, people who I think have got a lot to offer the listener and who have got a depth of knowledge and um, life in the game, which is um, as good as it gets. Um, my guest today is Richard Boxall. Um, now, Richard is an interesting fellow. He turned professional, I think, when he was 21 years of age, and he played 18 years on the European tour. Um, and he, in 1990, he won the Italian Open. He uh, he knows the tour inside and out. And, you know, it's interesting. One of the other co-hosts on the podcast is Mike Kershaw. Now, we joke about Mike because we claim that even though Mike's currently a scratch golfer at the age of 61, we claim, we say his claim to fame is that in 1980, he was the East Lancashire under-14 long drive champion, which is a title he's very proud of. And um, well, I, I could go on a little bit more, but I think it's better to let Richard speak for himself. Richard, welcome to the Golfing Mind. Yeah, thanks very much, Rob. That was a very nice intro, actually. I have to say that was uh, you've done your homework there, Rob. <laughs> no, you know, I'd, you know, I have many. Well, obviously, everybody knows that. I just have to just uh, repeat what a lot of people know. But tell me, it, turning pro at twenty-one seems it seems young now for someone. Did you go to the American University? Did you? No, <clears throat> no. Academically wise, Rob, I have to say, school and I didn't really sort of gel very much. I mean, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't sort of bunk off school and go and play golf. I did my stuff, but I left school pretty much around about 16, I suppose. And I, and I, I played in those days, I played off about, <clears throat> I was about five handicap. And then, at, you know, at 16, you've sort of stopped playing football and then there's motorbikes and there's girls and, the, you know, and the girlfriends and you sort of lose track a little bit. And um, I went away and I, I went working in a place called Archer's Golf and Sports Centre up in Twickenham just buying and selling golf clubs. It was a, a discount store, you know, really. And so I worked there literally pretty much for a whole year. Um, and then I remember my father, bless him, he, he said, he said, why don't you play the monthly medal at Camberley Heath? So I which was my home club. So I said, oh, all right. And I didn't really want to play. Anyway, we're off the back tees and I went out and played. And I knocked it round in 73 and I hadn't played for a year. And my father said to me, <clears throat> excuse me, my father said to me, look, he said, why don't you, he said, you can, you can talk, you can sell. He said, why don't you play as many amateur golf tournaments, see if you can get your handicap down from five to, to, to like one or two and possibly get a job, you know, with, in those days, Penfold or Slazenger or Dunlop as a rep. Mm. So I thought that's a great idea. That's a, that's a year's holiday. <laughs> Anyway, bless him. He, he, he said, get yourself a part-time job. So I went and worked on a building site and got a bit of money in the morning. He said, I'll pay for your, your digs and your entry fees into golf tournaments. He said, and you, um, see if you can get your handicap down. So anyway, that was in about, that was 19, when was that? 1979. So I was 18 then. Um, and I remember watching Seve. I popped my head in the clubhouse and I remember watching Seve when at Lytham. And I was playing off five handicap and I was down in Croydon somewhere playing in, in an event. Um, <clears throat> and then, and a year later, I'd got from five to scratch in eight months. And a year later, I was playing in, in, the, in the Open Championship in 1980 at Muirfield. <laughs> Absolutely. But, wetting pants, I can't tell you. 
Oh, well, I that's can. amazing. That's amazing. And I, I'm telling you, there's um, a friend of mine joined Warburg Golf Club many, many years ago, about a long, long time ago. And he was driving there and he, he loved to play very early in the morning. And when he used to turn up, there'd be a fellow on the range hitting balls. And um, one day he turned around and said, who's that guy on the range? And he said, oh, it's a young lad who works locally called Ian Poulter. Now, his <laughs> handicap at the time was, I think, four or five. So, yeah, six, it may even have been. And I also think David Ferte was another guy who turned pro. He was about five yeah. when he turned pro. So do you ever wonder what what made you go from five to like plus one or two? I mean, that's an extraordinary um, It's a well, in those, step change. Yeah, it was. It, listen, the way of getting your handicap down was a little different in those days in the respect of to get, you know, I've always said there's a, there's a bigger difference between five and scratch than, than there is between 24 and five. In my view, oh, I agree. And, yeah, I mean, you know, and there's a big difference between a club pro and a touring pro. Massive, massive difference. Um, but what made me get? I think in those days you had to get something like, I think you had to get to get from five to four and four to three and two to one. You had to get three rounds to that handicap or better in the space of twelve tournament rounds, and then your handicap would drop one. And then to get from from one to scratch, you had to do four in 12. And, I, you know, I was playing well. And, you know, I, I could obviously, I had a, had a bit of a talent for the game. And I, and I just kept knocking it around in level or two or three or four under, you know, and I got down and down. And I eventually got down to scratch. I think it was at Warpleston Golf Club in the John Cross Bowl. I think I think that was the event. Um, but, you know, I then, once I got down, I, I the, 1980, I played in the Open at, at Muirfield. I played with, uh, don't mean to interrupt you, but a quick question. I think it's everybody's fantasy to tee it up in the Open. And I, I remember talking years and years ago to a fellow who was a, a rugby player, and he got, a, he got his first international cap. And he said the difference between club rugby and first 15 and first class rugby is a big step. It gets faster. He said, when you go from first class to county level, it got faster. He said, but when you went from county to international, it was even tougher. Was that a back to when you teed it up at Muirfield? Was it? A, were you confident, or were you thinking, I just don't want to mess up? I, I, my first thought was, don't miss it on the first, whatever you do, don't have an air shot. I mean, I was, listen, I was nineteen years old. Um, I went on to the, I qualified at Gallon in a playoff. Um, I went. I went on the range. I, I remember standing next to Jack Nicholas hitting golf balls, and I, I didn't want to go any lower than a six iron. I, I just thought you can't do this because the way they hit it, the thud. Nicholas hit the ball, and there was a different. It, it was you know top top players have a different noise when they yeah. hit the ball. You know it's a different thud, and so sort of the ground shakes almost. And I remember I was on. I was playing with Christy O'Connor Jr. and John O'Leary. They were my partners, and and in those days. Still to these days, if you're an amateur, you get called Mister. So it's Mister Boxall, and you know, and the other guys are John or Christy. Uh, you have a guy walking around with you as a referee. You have a bloke who rakes a bunker. You know, you don't have to do any of that. Um, and the first hole at Muirfield was 19 paces wide that year in 1980. And I remember I could, I can hardly say play well on the tee. I was so nervous. I wanted my money so badly. Yeah. I can't tell you. So, you know, all my, my parents and stuff were watching, and I just thought, whatever you do, don't go boom, bounce and hit them, you know, have an air shot. It's like Formula One, you know, everyone wants to see a pilot, don't they? I mean, they didn't want to yeah, can drop, otherwise they wouldn't be there. So what these, what the Ams want to see, they want to see you top it, because that's what they do every Saturday morning. So, you know, 
they, they don't want to see you rip it down the middle. They know you can do that. <laughs> so there's a little bit of tension like that. You've got three or 4,000 people around the tee. And, and I remember I lost, I hit my ball just into the rough. It was a pro staff one. I'll never forget it. Hit it into the rough on the right, not very far. And those days it was five minutes to find your ball. And, yeah. and, I, and, I, and, and I remember the, uh, the referee said, that's four minutes, Mr. Boxall. And I thought, I looked back at the tee and on the tee was someone like Nicholas Trevino and Seve. You know, I was so much between two huge groups. And I thought, if I have to walk back to that tee, I'm going to walk back, walk past it, and go under the tunnel where the players come through the tee, go to the Greenville's Hotel, get a taxi, and go home. Because I just thought it was bad enough, you know, if I've got to go back and play three off the tee with those lots standing there, there's no Anyway, cut a long story short, Rob, we found the ball. I, I dropped a shot on the first holding from 15 feet. And then I made three or four birdies in the next seven holes, and I was leading the open. I thought, I'm going to join Bobby Jones here. Um, <laughs> And then I watched I watched Saturday and Sunday on Grandstand when I got home. <laughs> wow, what a great story. I mean, it, it is interesting. I've, I've done a lot of research into the – I look at the equipment. When you look at the equipment you were playing back in 1980, 81, the, the, the forged blades, I mean, the one irons, two irons. I mean, these yeah. are museum pieces now. Nobody – I know it sounds awful, doesn't it? I mean, I've worked for Sky for 20 – it's 23 or 24 years now, something like that. But uh, yes, you know, you sort of lose touch with what's going on because you're not using the stuff anymore. Um, but, you know, with the, the, the size of the... I had a, an Olimar driver, which was a persimmon-headed driver, which would actually look like a lollipop, you know, on the end of a shaft now. And players would think, I can't hit that. Um, where now the size of the driver, it's, you know, it's a bungalow on a stick, isn't it? I mean, it it's like a block, of flat behind, behind, a block of flats behind the ball when you put the club there. Um, so, yeah, the technology has changed massively. There's so many things that have changed. You know, we never had courtesy cars. We, we never had range balls. No. You know, we had, we had caddies and we used to send, there used to be 30 caddies down the range and you'd bring your own practice balls and you'd send your caddy down and start off with a few wedges or sand irons and then move him back. And then you'd be going right or left if you pulled one or pushed one or whatever. Those days were really great fun. You know, caddies used to get hit, unfortunately, if they're bound to with 30 people down there. But those, you know, yes, the money wasn't around, but those, those days were really, really, you know, I think every generation says it. I think I really, it was a really good time when I played. I'm sure it you was. Know, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about something. I, you know, I've written a few books on golf. And people ask me this question. I'm, I have my own theory on it. People ask me, are mentally tough players? You'll have met many players who are just coming down the stretch. It's a match play. Do you think people are born mentally tough or do you think they can learn or Nicholas says you learn to win through a process of learning to manage losing so his view is you can learn to become mentally tougher and yet you have players like Faldo who people say he was just tough out of the out of the gates you have any thoughts? I think well I have got plenty of thoughts on that I, you know I always think it, it, I think a lot of it is how you how you are brought up now I was also always brought up with people that had a lot of cash in their pockets okay I just not not necessarily my father, but you know, just people I associated with, with the businesses they had, they had a lot of cash. And that always I used to always think, well, I'd like to have a nice thick toilet roll of that in my pocket, you know. So, and, and my problem was when I played, I played for the money because I needed the money, and that held me back. I think quite quite a bit, you know. If I mean, I've played when I've been skint, and I've played when I've had a few quid, 
And I know when it's easier to play. It's a lot easier to play when you've got a few quid. You know, it would be great to see, not great, it would be interesting to see some of the top players without naming any, if, they, if they'd come in and said, right, here's 1,500 quid. I can, I can sort you out as a sponsor for one week, but after that, you're on your own. You know, that, that would be interesting rather than somebody comes into the game. Yes, they're great players. They've got a load of sponsorship and they start the year off with X amount of thousand in the bank, which will cover them for the whole year. And they go out and they play well and they win a tournament or two or whatever. I've always thought it's very interesting. You know, I've got, I've got, a, great, I've got a phrase <laughs> that I say that money isn't everything, but it's right up there with oxygen. Right? <laughs> and, it, and, you know, and, and I truly think it is. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of the players are all are much of a muchness. They're all really good players. It's, it is the yeah, but I, I'm I'm always curious. If you look at someone like um, Trevino, Trevino was a guy who came from dirt poverty, had a dirt floor in his ca- cabin. You look yeah. at someone like Byron Nelson. Byron Nelson wanted enough money to buy a farm and then be a farmer, which is what he actually did. He retired early. Right. You get Ben Hogan, who grew up in the caddy yard with Byron Nelson. You get Sam Snead. So a lot of these guys to Sebi, and they came from poverty. So they played for money. Um, they played, so money for them became really, you know, possibly the, they weren't playing for legacy. And um, I've often wondered about this. I My kind of feeling is that you can develop a degree of mental toughness. I mean, were there any players in match play that you think, you know, you wouldn't bet against back in the day? Uh, well, I, well, I wouldn't have liked to play against. Yeah, or, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you were thinking, put this way, when I played match play, I played golf at my university, but it, it, it's Mickey Mouse. Um, yeah. But there was one or two guys who you just knew wouldn't hand you a hole. They wouldn't crack. You know, if you're coming oh, yeah. down. Yeah, I've an example of that, Rob. I, I, <clears throat> not in a match play, but in, I remember one year in the Dutch Open, I I was playing with Monty and we were pretty much... Uh, off near the, you know, we were in the last two, three groups on the on the final day. I think it was, and um, well, I know it wasn't. And uh, I said to Monty, you know, as the players are leaving the putting green, and I said to Monty, I said, do you, I said, do you ever play for the money? And at that point, he'd won a few fair few tournaments, and he was doing one. He said, do you, do you ever? I said, do you, you know, do you ever play for the money down the last down the stretch down the last six nine holes? He went, oh God, no, never, never, never enters my mind the money. And I thought I've got no chance against you. Because, you know, I'm, I am thinking about the money and I need the money and I've got my gas bill to pay and my mortgage to pay. You know, I am thinking about the money. I'm thinking more about the money than silverware. Well, he was the other way around. He didn't do stuff about the money. He was thinking about the silverware. So, yeah. you know, if you put yourself up against something like that, you, you've really mentally not got a lot of chance. Yeah. You know, it might, it might happen. But, you know, there's things like that that happen in, in my life. And, you, you know, players would say to me, oh, do you not start the year off with X amount in the bank and then just take it out of the tournament? I said, no, I don't. You know, I, I said to one player once, I said, oh, he said, how's it, how's it going? I said, oh, I said, I'm about 15 grand overdrawn. He said, what, you owe the bank money? I said, yeah. He said, well, do you not start with a, with a big pot? He said, and just take the money out and just play the I said, I bloody wish. No. <laughs> I said, but no. But, uh, but I, I mean, what amazes me is when I watch the uh, DP, the European Tour events, and uh, your commentary, which I thoroughly enjoy, uh, I, there's so many names I don't recognise. And there's no spectators at some of the, well, there are, but sometimes, and sometimes they're pushing their own trolley. And you go, 
that's yeah, that, that, but that's a reality professional golf isn't it in truth that is the reality i i got to say i think trombies on a golf course in a pro event look horrendous i agree i, I think that's awful i think it makes it look not professional um i think there should almost be a rule you have to have a caddy end of you yeah. know I, that, that's what i think um I can't remember what you had a bit of the question. Well, the, was, the, point, the point was the point was that you know when people kind of watch the the the, the, the PGA Tour and they watch the the majors, they think, "Wow, look at these guys!" And it's the same oh, twenty yeah. guys competing, and these are the twenty guys that are making eighty percent of the money. So the other eighty percent are maybe I've, I, I made that number up, but it's something. I think, like, I think it's a bit more spread now. You know, when I came on the tour, there was only I reckon there was fifteen to twenty players that could win. You know, the others were just making up the field. And then as time moved on, gradually, he won from the left wing and then he won from the right wing. And he thought, oh, there's a few people you wouldn't have thought of one have come into the, the honeypot and won. In the respect of spectators and stuff, I, I know exactly what you're saying. It's, it's They're quite sparse on occasions, aren't they? But I, I think it's vitally important for the DP World Tour to keep these national opens going. You know, you watched the KLM Dutch Open the other week. That got exactly what it deserved. You know, it was a good course. There was plenty of spectators. It was the Dutch Open. It was the KLM Dutch Open. Um, and they got a good winner and they got a good result and they had huge crowds. And that made a big difference. You know, they're doing lots of things nowadays by beat the pro on the par threes, which is great. Bring all those kind of things in. But nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Um, but I, I think it's vital... You know, you said to somebody, "Do you want to win the? Do you want to win the Dutch Open, or do you want to win the Kazoo Classic?" You know, you'd want to win. They're both nice to win, but you'd want to win the Dutch Open. You know, because I, I, you know, or a German Open or a French Open. Oh no, of course, yeah. I think I mean an Open is an Open, and it's yeah. a, it's it's a it's a full field. I mean, I, do, can you see the? Uh, do you think the European Tour is going to stay as it is, or can you see it getting stronger? Or, um, I, I think. From what's been going on recently, yeah, I okay. think I think that we that the DP World Tour will pick up some some very nice scraps from the table, if you know what I mean. Sure, yeah. I think I th and it would be nice, and I think you know you, you need to get you know a, a lot of these players before who went in certain directions says, "Oh, we're doing this for the good of the game." That, that isn't doing it for the good of the game. Doing it for the good of the game is playing in the French Open, playing in the Dutch Open, playing in the Spanish Open, playing in the German Open, if there was one. That is for the good of the game, you know, and that really helps the DP World Tour. I think the DP World Tour will be will be fine. Um, and I think a few of the top players will, will obviously come back and play the events that they want to play, like BMW, PGA, Irish Open, Scottish Open, you know, all those sort of things. Um, but, you know, you can't blame players uh, for going for going where, where the money is, really. I mean, you know. But another question I want to ask you, when I look at the history of, of golfers, professional golfers get out of the game, you know, they get older, they lose a bit of distance, this, that, and the next thing. When I did a lot of research, the one thing that the professionals said went first was their putting. You know, the, I think it was Tom Watson who said, when you have to make four-footers for par, it wears your nerves down. And I think, yeah. and I think Palmer was the same. For you, what was the... First sign of decline. Uh, first decline. Also, you felt I can't compete as well as I have done in the past. But my chipping went a bit strange. My chipping went a bit yippy, um, and I got to the point where I actually was was fairly scared of water. 
right? And I didn't want to, not that I couldn't swim. I mean, I can swim, but I mean, what, what I mean in the, in the golf. I know, is, I know. It, 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 it's that you'd see it and it became like this giant. Yeah, and, and I, didn't want, I didn't want a three-quarter shot over it or a half a shot because I'd fat it. And if I didn't fat it, I'd thin it. I wanted a full shot in. So then, so I would start laying up and I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't go, let's just, I'm just plucking a yardage out of the air. If it was 225 to the front, which you could reach, let's say, in those days, I mean, they do it now with a forearm. But I mean, if it was 225, in your youth, you'd have a go at that. But when you're going a bit, when things aren't quite right, you think, oh, I'll lay up. And when you start laying up, you're not playing the you're not playing it how it should be played. No. You know, and, and I, you know, and I, my chipping went a little bit. I mean, the worst thing, when I broke my leg in 1991 in the Open Championship, playing with Montgomery. I'd like to stop you for the, for the people listening. I, I was going to mention the introduction, the broken leg, because I All think right. you'll be remembered. You know, I always think if you're going to make the show reel uh, in the Open Championship, you're either going to make a hole-in-one, drive a par four, or whiff your shot in the first tee, or yeah. break your leg on the tee box, and you broke your leg in the tee box. And you must have told the story a hundred times. So, yeah, oh, I think a bit more than a hundred. But um, yeah, no, I, I was, I was. I mean, do you want to hear the story from the word go? No, well, I'd love to, but I, I, yeah, if you don't mind telling it, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I went at the Open was at Birkdale, and um, I'd been up there, uh, and I got up there on the Monday. I was exempt, um, and so I got up. And I played a few practices. I played with Malcolm McKenzie and I played with a few others. I was sharing a house with Malcolm McKenzie. Anyway, I played nine holes with Gary Player. And, and I just remember in my at the bottom of my foot, above my foot, sort of where my ankle was, when I made a movement, it sort of ached a little bit or hurt. It hurt. Not a sharp pain, but it hurt a little bit. And I thought it's probably just walking on the hard ground. So anyway, um, cut long story short, I got all right through the first two rounds. I played quite well. Um, I shot 68. I can't remember quite what the scores were. But anyway, I was nine right on there. Anyway, going into the third round, I was in the top 10, playing with Monty. And I remember phoning my manager. I would be teeing off at like, I don't know, those days, 10 past two in the afternoon. I phoned Chubby Chandler, who was my manager. And I said, there's something wrong with my leg. It didn't feel right. So he said, oh, you're just nervous. You're just edgy. You know, you're playing in it playing in the open and you're, and you're right up there. So I said, yeah, yeah, you're probably right, yeah. Anyway, I went down and I started just hobbling a little bit and I thought this, did, and it just didn't feel right, my left leg. So I, um, I went onto the range and I started hitting a few balls and I went onto a bit of a down slope and then went onto an up slope. Up, up slope was all right because there was more weight on my right side, but a down slope was, it was something in my brain was telling me you can't do this. Anyway, I went to Monty and I said to him, I said, Monty, I've got something wrong with my leg. And he's like, yeah, yeah, trying to win a major, back off. So anyway, we carried on. I remember Ivor Robson started this and I hit a three-iron off the first. It was downwind at Burtdale. It was just a three-iron to the corner and I hit the shot and I nearly shanked it. But it went low and rose and the crowd thought it was a great shot, but I knew it was nearly a bloody shank. Anyway, I got down there. Hit a few shots, hit a couple of uphill shots, which was fine. I then got around about the set, uh, seventh and I hit a two-arm from a downslope and I shanked it because I, I, I was coming into it like that and spinning out. I couldn't get my weight through because my brain was saying, you can't go onto your left side with force. 
So I said to Monty a couple of times, I said, oh, there's something. I said, Monty, I've really got something more money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're trying to win a major, for Christ's sake. So, so we carried on and we got to the eighth. And I remember I had a ping one on those days. That again was downwind. And I hit a one iron off that here, one iron. He was, he was a long way past me. And I was, I, by that point, I'd started to not be able to squat down to look at lines on the green. The pass, you know, I had to keep my left leg straight out. And I thought there's something wrong here. If it had been a normal, you know, tour event, run of the mill event, I'd have, I would have pulled out, but it's the open. Mm. You know, I had two shanks up to them and I'm, and I'm two shots off the lead still. So, so Monty on the eighth says to me, there is something wrong, isn't there? I went, yeah, yeah. So I got to the ninth, I walked onto the ninth tee and it was a ping one arm off the tee. And I remember walking to the Schweppes drinks. And I thought, I'm just going to commit here. It's like you had something that was blocked in, let's say, in your wrist. And if you flick it hard enough, it will go away, you know, like a yeah, I know. or something. So so I stood over this ping one iron and, and I remember standing over it. And as I stood over it, no disrespect to 24 handicappers, but it was like I didn't know what I was doing. I just thought my brain is obviously saying, don't do what you're about to do. And I thought, just commit to it, whatever you do. So I just swung back and committed. And as I hit the ball, my left shin snapped in half. And I hit the deck like a sack of garden manure. <laughs> it was a good tee shot, actually. It was right down the middle. But anyway, so I hit the deck. And everybody was just, you know, jaws hitting the deck. I had no idea what was going on. Ping, the club came out of my hand. My wife at the time, she thought I'd been shot. They were over the hill and they heard a, a crunch. And, like, she thought I'd been shot. Oh, dear. So... You know, she's saying, have you signed all the insurance? <laughs> so, so anyway, so at the end of the day, um, Monty had to play two holes on his own, I think, with the referee and join up with Barry Lane and um, Vijay Singh or Mike McLean. I can't remember who it was, but I know how Clark Mark James were behind me. Um, and I was literally, you know, down 34 and back in the ambulance, literally. And I, I always say it's... It's amazing the extremes you'll go to not to play with Colin Montgomery. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say that when they make the film Your Life Story, they'll have to rewrite that bit. You play on with a broken leg and you win or something. Yeah, I mean, there's other bits to it, but I didn't want to elongate it out. No, that's oh, fine. But I think I think it's a Do they know the cause of this? Was it just a stress fracture? Yeah, it, it went like a uh, like if you get a, gr a, a green twig that's yeah. not brittle, you try to break it will it snaps at either end and then the middle bit comes off oh, i see that's so mine at that end snapped at the bottom and the middle bone had come off um but you'd be surprised how many people were standing around that tea when i broke my leg yeah, like um, yeah oh no people say to me oh there's all that bone was sticking out your shin i thought it wasn't but i went you know i remember i remember they wanted to take me off the course on a on a, on a buggy and put my leg up on the top of the buggy, you know, you imagine over the bumps. Oh God, no. So I went, I literally went in an ambulance and I got to the clubhouse and the back of the ambulance opened. It was my manager, Chubby. He never didn't say anything. He just looked at me and shook his head as if to say, you know, what the hell has gone wrong here? He just saw, he but just saw, he just saw his, his commission going. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, but then I, and then I went to um, Southport General uh, in an ambulance, so the two motorbikes, one two at the front, two at the back, took us there. And then I was in there for a week, and then I had to pay a lot of money to get back down in the ambulance. And uh, I had to pay a lot of money, full stop. Wasn't insured. I was literally, I was signing an insurance on the Monday, I swear to you, after the open. 
and I was on, you couldn't backdate it or anything. I was on news at 10 and everything. Like that. So I lost the fortune. And, and I never, when I came back, I never really played the same. You know, I said to the doctor, he said, you're going to be in plaster for um, 18 weeks. I said, I can't. I said, you've got the Lancome trophy and, you know, Cronsessier to play. He said, no, you won't be doing any of that. Yeah. I said, no, but, you know, you can't take it on board. I said, no, 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 but you don't get it. I got to play in the Lancome. You know, I had to play in all these yeah, events. But t- tell me, do, at the moment, there's a lot of news about slow play. On, on the, do you think slow play has become an epidemic in the amateur game, not the pro game? I think the pro game is always, it's always about a five-hour round in the pro game. Uh, if you're playing three balls, it's about five hours, yeah. If you're playing two, two balls, you can get around a lot quicker. You know, if you were first off in the third round in the two ball, you know, you, you, they would be round in three hours, 20, three and a half probably. But why is it so slow? In the, is it just everyone takes so much time over every shot? Like, uh, yeah, I mean they play ready golf now, right? You know, which, which I, you don't see a great deal of that. But you know, I was always quite a quick player. You know, if if you're second to play, you should have you know, you're second to play. Don't then get your yardage book out and start pacing it out. I mean, you should. By the time the first bloke plays, you know what club it is. You yeah. know, you know what you're going to hit. Um, and th- there's a. Sometimes there's a lot of discussion. There's a whole book written before somebody hits a shot sometimes, you know, which just drives you mad. Were there, were there any players that you loved to play with and any players you were not so keen to play with? And you don't need I, to name, you can if, tell me who you love, but you don't need to tell me who you didn't no, love. No, I don't mind. No, the people I, I always found it difficult playing with were your mates, the ones you travelled with. Because when you had practice rounds, you laughed and joked and messed around and, you know, and said, oh, what's that water over there? You know, all yeah. those sort of things. Then all of a sudden you've got to go from being mates and having a laugh and a joke to being deadly serious. And that's what I found very difficult. Um, lots of players I played with, you know, I, I didn't really mind playing with anyone. Um, I just thought, I always thought it difficult. Well, I knew it was difficult in my head. They may not have thought it, but I always thought it was difficult playing with your mates. That was difficult. But I played with some pretty, you know, pretty good players in my time, I must say. Yeah, I was talking to a major winner and I asked him who he didn't like playing with. And he said, oh, I didn't like playing with Arnold Palmer. And I said, really? He said, no, a lot of people don't like playing with Arnold. And I said, why was that? And he said, well, because Arnold's biggest interest was Arnold. So he said, Arnold might three-putt the first green, but you birdied the first, you, you birdied the first and he bogeys. Yeah. And he said, you're walking up the next fairway and all he's talking to you about is his bogey. As an, I've never three jacked that first green. Can you believe I did that? I just find that rude. Okay. And, and and then he turned to him and say, "What did you get in the last hole?" And he said, oh, "That was it was just." And he said, That's "Really?" Yeah. And he, and he also said, um, "You know, Trevino talked a lot." And he said yeah. that, uh, but he said that was Trevino's way of staying calm and distracting himself and just being yeah. loose. You know, whereas there's some people that just wouldn't speak. We hear Tiger Woods wouldn't speak. I had a fantastic story when Tiger Woods played in the. Uh, in the um, Walker Cup, I think it was Oxford or Cambridge University offered a caddy for them. And uh, some guy was given Tiger and said, well, this is your caddy. And the guy was a guy that played a scratch golfer. Woods didn't, other than just say point to his bag, Woods didn't talk to him. Didn't, really? didn't talk to, no, no. And I think they were playing at Porth Call, Royal Porth Call, great course. And um, and they, they played the first two days and it came down to the singles. And the, Woods has hit his, a three-word or something off the tee. And he, he looked at the caddy, and for the first time, he says, seven or eight. And he <laughs> says, um, I think it's seven. And I think Woods was playing. Guy, was it Wollstone Hall? Um, yeah. 
And Wilson Homer wasn't long, and he, but he battled, hung in, hung in, hung in. And Woods got a seven run out and put it over the green into the beach and lost the match. <laughs> but so, so I guess it takes horse. Someone said if you play with Woods, the minute he moves, the crowd moves. and it can be- Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, a lot of players, you know, Tiger would let players finish out. Yeah. Because so that, so that, he, you know, he, was, he was good like that. He knew that um, you know, as soon as he tapped in, the crowds just went because they wanted to get to the next tee, so that would put put the players off. But uh, I never played in. Well, I played in the two or three tournaments that he played in. But I was coming to the end when he was coming around. Yeah. And I I always remember being in. I think we were in somewhere in 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 Asia, and I Tiger Woods was playing. He had a one of these girls carrying from you know from the club, and he was an amateur. And I was with my mate Derek Cooper outside the clubhouse. I said, "There's that amateur up there." I said, "Tiger Woods, you know, up on the hill." Yeah, I said, Christ, I said, he better be able to play with a name like that. You know, <laughs> and he wasn't bad in the end, was he? <laughs> it wasn't that famous quote when someone said to Sandy Lyle, what do you think of Tiger Woods? And he said, I haven't played it yet. I don't know. <laughs> or I haven't used them. When <laughs> I was, a, I'm, a, I'm in my mid-60s and a pal of mine played in the British Amateur against the Sandy Lyle called Alexander Lyle back in the day. And this friend of mine was thinking of turning pro. He said he was 16, he was a scratch, and he's playing Sandy Lyle in the knockout, second or third round. He said he hit his drive to the corner, and Sandy took a, a ping one iron and carried the corner. I mean, just this monster shot. And this pal of mine said, at that moment, I decided I needed to continue with my education. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, look, before That's we wrap up, a, a couple of quick questions. What yeah. You must have played a lot of pro-ams in your time. What yes. do you think is the number one or the two biggest faults you see amateur golfers making? Do you think they have unrealistic expectations? They try and hit it too hard? I mean, what is there? I know it's a big question. To I don't want you to generalise, but I guess you're going to have to. I think I will have to generalise. I, I think the biggest problem I see with amateurs is they don't practice before they go out. Yeah. You know, when I say practice, just go in the net. Hit a few balls. I mean, the amount of times you see them get on the first and top it, I'm not surprised. They've had a whole week in the office. They come straight to the tee at half eight in the morning. They haven't warmed up, get no. the driver out and go, boink. So, no, you know. But then you've played in America where you have these lush practice facilities and you can get a breakfast. Where here, you put your shoes on the car park, tucking your shirt in, you know. Yes, looking- trying, to, trying to get a bacon sarnie down your throat. Yeah. Who are you <laughs> handing your bag and going, Dunlop 65, they haven't, they haven't seen one of these for a while. How, how, how old are you then, Rob? I'm 60, I have to think, 67. Right, I'm 62. So you, you'd have remembered the Dunlop Warwick, the Dunlop 65. and Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, I, 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 you. do you remember golf balls when they were wrapped in plastic and you had to peel them open? Oh, no. Um, I may have seen one, but I, don't, um, I, I didn't go Penfold, there. Penfold. You used to buy a Penfold. I mean, Really? I'll tell you the thing about new golf balls that I love. I've played golf in my time with wealthy people. I've actually played with two billionaires at different points in my life. And they get more upset over a brand new golf ball they lose than they do about, you know, their private jet being diverted. <laughs> do you know, here, here's an interesting stat. Isn't it? Now, this, this is amazing. I, you always think that mil- billionaires and millionaires run sort of not far off on the same tracks, right? I had a great stat from Tony Johnson who said to me, if you're a millionaire, he said, if you're a millionaire, he said, if every pound was a second on the clock, he said, that would last you 11 days. 
He said, if you're a billionaire, a single billionaire, and every pound was a second on the clock, he said it would last you 32 years. <laughs> Boy, that kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Hey, how's that now? Somebody I... tried to work that out and they said, Christ, you're not far off. I said, I said, I couldn't get over it. That's oh. unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And um, do you still play golf? Are you still playing? Or? No, I, no I, 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 um, you know, I, I've stopped now for 23, 24 years. And the reason I don't play is, is because the brain box is 28 playing the European tour. Yeah. And the body is, whenever I didn't play, 58, 59. And the problem is, is the brain writes checks that the body can't cash. I know, I know, I know, I tell you. As I say and to people... Golf, I, listen, Rob, I love golf. I love it. But I don't love hitting it out the neck and I don't love shanking it. And it, But it's only because I played at a reasonable level on the tour. No, I, I know. I must tell you, I was in America. I, play, I had played golf with Tony Jackson, lovely, lovely man. And he said to me, he invited me to play golf at the club that I happened to be based at as a professional courtesy. And he'd written the forward for one of my books and we played together. And uh, the people in the club said, oh, Tony never played. Aren't you lucky? And Tony said, look, I don't enjoy playing now because people expect me to hit perfect shots all the time. And I don't. And the pressure I feel playing with strangers, I can't enjoy it. So I totally understand what you're saying. And I oh, think... Yeah, you know, if, when, in the days when I used to play, when I was, you know, when I was, um, when I'd finished playing, I mean, I missed it probably for, I actually missed the competitive side for a good five years, I would say. I missed that. Um, the, th the thing I didn't miss straight away was having to take my um, my uh, golf clubs to overweight buggy luggage, whatever it was called. Do you remember? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. you oh, outsized baggage. Outsized baggage. Oh, to travel with just a suitcase was bliss. And, and actually, this week coming up, I'm sick of that now. I'm going hand luggage now. Right. No. Just, in fact, before I spoke to you, I've got all my stuff, you know, my 100 mil stuff of underarm deodorant and that. And I'm going hand luggage because I lost my luggage. I got my flight was cancelled last Sunday or two Sundays ago. Coming out of Hamburg at nine thirty at night, get a hotel, and then I flew home. And then the company lost my bloody bags, and I just thought, Do you know what? I'm sick of this. So, so much easier. I'm getting on and off a bus then. Okay, for the we we've been very successful in this podcast picking winners in the in the majors, picking top five players. Who in the DP tour should we look out for in the next? two to three years, if you were, and not not for betting purposes, but just to follow. I remember a pal of mine caddied from Matteo Manassera years yeah. ago, and before he was an amateur, said, you need to watch this. This guy's going to do great things. Then he was on the tour, and then he, I think he came off the tour. I think he's trying to get back onto the tour. Well, he, won, he won a Challenge Tour event the other week. Oh, did he? Is yeah, that... That's, that, which was great, because, yeah, he won four events, one of them being the BMW PGA. But then yeah. he tried to get he tried to get more length um, you know, I, I never understand it. You won. There's only one person I know that's changed his whole swing and got low better. That was Nick Fowler. You, you know, know I, mean, I, can, I can share the story with you because it's. I was got to know David Ledbetter well in Florida, and he told me that when Fowler went to won his first Masters, they turned up at the range and he said his game was all over the place. Fowler's game was all over the place, and he and he and he said it. He turned to Nick, he said, all right, get a seven iron out. He said, hit the seven. Okay, get your wedge out. He just made him hit different shots. And I said, why were you doing that? He goes, I didn't know what else to do. You know, he said, yeah. but I, but he did try and rebuild a swing. And I think the reason for that, and I've got this theory, I think confidence in golf is king. 
confidence in golf is king. If you have confidence yeah. in yourself, it gives you mental edge. Doesn't necessarily oh, it, win. You know, the mental edge. Do you remember a guy called Joss Van Stapel? Who, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he was a Dutch guy. He was a Belgian. Belgian guy, yeah. Lovely bloke. And, and I got hold of him once at Canoosti. Um I'd shot, I don't know what it was, I'd shot bloody 85 or so. It was a blow in a howl at the Hooli. But anyway, cut long, I'd made the cut. The cut long story, I was qualifying at um, Lytham and St. Anne's on the mon- on the Sunday and Monday, trying to qualify for the Open at Lytham. And I, I, I said, can I work, Can you work with me? He said, yeah, 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 yeah. So so we were on the range at Canoosti. He stood there, he had this big hat, and he just stood there like that. And he said, okay, he said, get a six iron out of three on or whatever he said okay he said hit me um he said hit me a six out of ten so i looked at him i said it's a what he said just hit me a six out of ten shot so i said all right so hit it and i said uh he said what was that i said seven he said right he said hit me he said hit me a three out of ten this is the first thing he said so hit me a three out of ten i said a three out of ten he said yeah so it, well, I, I tried to hit a three out of ten. He said, what was that? I said, nine. He said, right. And he said, now hit me another nine. I said, so hit your nine. He said, hit me a nine out of ten. Like that. He said, what was that? I said, seven. So I thought, right, I, I see where you're going here with this. <laughs> so so he, said, he said, hit me a one out of ten. So I said, all right. So I hit him a one out of ten. He said, what was that? I said, nine and a half. So he says, right. So you can see where he's going with it. Yeah, it's too hard. You know, and, and I, I saw him from, and I went out and I shot the very next day, I shot the course record at Lytham St. Anne's, uh, not Lytham St. Anne's, at um, St. Anne's Old Link, St. Anne's Old Link. Wow. And I still, I still got a course record today. But I went out and I qualified for the Open and I made the cut. And, but I always think with these mental things that, you know, your sports psychologist, it, it works. It does work. There's no question about it. But it works for about six weeks, and you have to get something new. I totally agree with that. I mean, I always say to people, I've got to. I always say to my clients, look, in your head, there's a four-digit combination, and I've got to find that combination for you. But it changes every month. You know, yeah. what's important, what gets everything. It's not a quick fix, but it's it's something you can lock into, and it almost becomes a distraction. Um, well, I said to somebody, you know, it was another good thing. Said, listen to yourself, breathe. And they went, what? I said, not. <sighs> Like that, I said, get over a putt, feed the computer, which is your brain box, tell it what you just outside left, ball left, whatever, then listen to yourself breathe. And they said, What do you mean? I said, It takes all thoughts away. I said, It takes everything away. Your brain knows what you've got to do. And there's no question about it. I've, I putted when I, you know, I don't mean out loud, I mean just I know, I know what you mean exactly. It's very, I mean, it's, it's very zen. Be aware of your breathing. Be yeah. Aware. And what is that? Jordan Spieth, when he won the Masters, was. Putting, he putted looking at the hole. And, you know, yeah, I, I tried that. I, well, I putt, but I putt anything under 10 or 15 feet. I just look at the hole. And the logic being the hole's the target, not the ball. And you can get a thing. I used yeah. to skydive years ago. I used to skydive. And I, I used to go to Arizona to this place called Eloy, brilliant, biggest drop zone in the world. And there's nothing there. It's a desert, but there's one big cactus bush. That's it. There's one big cactus <laughs> bush in 2,000 acres. And you would see students doing their first couple of jumps, coming down and hitting this bush. Now, you'd say to them, well, why did you hit the bush? And they'd go, well, I was trying to miss it. And it's called target fixation. So right. as they all, they're all saying, where the, 
energy, where the thinking goes, the energy flows. So if you start looking at the water, going back to your saying, God, yeah. God that's where the energy is. That's where the, the subconscious mind is going, whoa. Um, that, but before we go, you were going to say, were there any names to look out for, or were you prefer to? Oh, no, I, I did. I was talking to Dale Whitmore the other week, literally on the range a bit, the Dutch Open, and I, I was, you know, he's been playing well and he's been threatening up there. And I, so I was just saying to him, I said, you won't be long, mate, just keep going. I said, you will one, win one, and he did win one on Sunday. Right. Um, there are, you know, it, he's a good player. Whether he kicks on from there, I don't know. Um, there's plenty of good young players which, out there. Which nationality are we seeing a lot of? I've seen a lot of Scandinavians when I watch the, the tour. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a few. Um, God, who's the ones that are coming through at the moment? There's a lot from. Um, then Danish players, or is it? Denmark, Denmark. There's a lot of good Danes coming up at the moment. So keep, keep yeah, keep your eye out on those ones as well. Um, what else was I going to say to you? I was going to say something to you about the. Oh yes, no, I, I I did speak to you earlier on today, but I just for the podcast sake, the best saying I ever heard from a sports psychologist was the one that said to me, and I've thought about it all through my life, not necessarily just with golf, but with things in general. And he said, he said to me, quoted to me, he said, whatever ails or bothers you, it's not the thing itself. It's the importance you attach to it. He said, and you've got the power to change that at any given time. And, I, and, I, and I've had that with me for, God, I don't know, 40 years, probably, maybe, maybe around about that time. No, less, no, no, 30 years, probably. But I always looked at that. And, you know, he said to me, what is what's stress? And I said, well, stress is, you know, coming down. He said, stress does not exist. He said, there's no, somebody doesn't come along and go, by the way, there's stress, put that in your top pocket. He said, and just carry it around with you all day, will it? I said, right. He said to me, there's no difference. He said, what's the difference between coming down the last hole at Royal Lytham with a four to take 20 quid off your mates or a four to win the Open? I said, well, there's a massive difference. He said, what is the difference? I said, well, you've got crowds. He said, yeah. He said, blank them out. He said, what is the difference? I said, well, fundamentally, there isn't a difference. He said, no, there isn't. He said, but you are filling your trousers about it. He said, and you are the one that's creating the problem. And you're the one that has the power to change that. You know, and I said, that's easy sitting in the bloody chair there. Like well, that. It's, 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 do you know something? I'll tell you, when I was learning to skydive, um, you, you put all your kit on, your parachute, your reserve, everything. You've done your instruction and you walk to the aircraft and the, the guy says, now, Robin, when we get up to 12,500 feet, we're going to open the door. You're going to climb out the door. You're going to hold oh. on to the grips. And then he says to you, and then I want you to breathe and relax. And you're thinking, as Ben Hogan once said, and someone said, why don't you relax? Hogan famously said, what? How can you play golf and relax at the same time? <laughs> but Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. And I maybe I can tempt you to come and join another edition when the boys are with us discussing some hot topic. But uh, yeah. you're you're appearing that you're sort of a regular commentator on Sky TV at the moment. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I've been doing. I work for Sky now. I started for twenty three, twenty four years, probably something like that. Started on. You know, I did a few little bits to start with with Sky, and then and then I had like a magazine show, and then I got into. I wanted to do in the box commentary, and I did probably thirteen years on the course, probably commentating. Then I got, went into the box. I'm doing one this year in Qatar. I'm doing on course, but but uh, no, I've had a nice time. I really really enjoyed it. And, no, um, you, you you do great commentary, and you have that wonderful ability to know when to speak and know when to not speak, which is uh, <laughs> yes. a little, little that not. does help. 
<laughs> okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, um, that's it for this week. If you're interested in learning about the mental game of golf, my website is seagagolf.com. But until then, play good golf, enjoy yourself. And Richard, thank you very much for being my guest. No problem. Okay.